In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. On today's podcast, we ask, why is the collective well-being of America on a decline? What can we learn from those who overcome tragedy and trauma to create a life of purpose and value? Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Dr. Roger McFillin. You know, we've gotten a lot of feedback about the quality of our podcast, as well as the, the topics. And certainly we're addressing issues that I think are really critical, both in the mental health field, society, and culture. However, we often get this feedback that we're often identifying the problems with not enough solutions, mm-hmm. or some of the feedback we're even getting is it's really a downer to listen to some of the things that we're, we're talking about. And it's so important. I feel validated. You do? Why yeah. is that? Because I felt like uh, I've tried to talk about the positives in here and try and end it with that. Oh, and I, I, feel like positivity. I feel like we're going in that direction and I like this. I no, feel, I I feel like you've had a come no, to Jesus moment. You're, you're misunderstanding me. Right? <laughs> so I need you to hear this clearly. Okay. Highlighting the problems that exist in both society, culture, how we address our mental health problems, the challenges with psychiatric drugs, the drug culture, prescription drug culture in the United States, the inability for us to be able to really discuss scientific findings and research to inform the greater populace in how to make informed decisions, Mm -hmm. helping assisting parents, and really talking to people who struggle with anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress. These are, these are critical topics. We're not trying to um, have those really challenging conversations and then try to focus on positives. No, we're highlighting those problems for a reason. Now, the reason that, we, that I talk a lot about my concerns with the medicalization of human distress is because of what I see every day. I see the resilience of people who have gone through some horrific incidents and situations in their life. And I've seen them be able to to respond and overcome those challenges in their life. To develop a life that is, in in so many ways, I think um, it's so inspiring because I've seen people create a life of value and purpose that is certainly has arisen through those experiences. And there is a wisdom that is generated and a sense of purpose and a well-being that has inspired me to want to speak out and talk more about the resilience of the human condition. Because I think as a field, especially as a psychologist, we should be really interested in those who've overcome adversity in life, mm-hmm. whether that's trauma, early loss, adverse conditions. What can we learn from them that can inform our understanding of mental health? So instead of disordering, fragilizing, medicalizing, victimizing, drugging, I think we should just learn from these amazing people, how do you recover? 
And how do you create a life of, of purpose and value? Um, you know, what are your impressions of the, the mental well-being of American society? I don't want to just use coming out of a pandemic as, um, you know, kind of the justification of why we are, are struggling with anxiety, depression, suicide, and substance abuse, because everything about those statistics shows that it's been, in, it's been increasing, you know, dating back, you know, 25, 30 years. So like the general well-being of the United States culture, um, what are your, what are your opinions? Well, I think people in general, when they went through struggle years ago, decades ago, they accepted struggle. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's a really important point. And I think in, I have this as part of our discussion, um, this concept of acceptance that, um, life is, life is, is hard, is hard. It's very, very challenging. And there's almost like this constant messaging that exists in our culture that if you're experiencing something difficult or challenging, that there is something wrong within you. There's a less of a normalization and an acceptance of what would be um, the trials, the tribulations, the heartache, the struggles, and the pain of living. I find myself wondering, you know, we always kind of look back with rose-colored glasses, and we think about the previous generations, and I imagine they had their own set of struggles, and they made mistakes, and those mistakes probably aren't documented the way that everything is documented now, and everybody puts stuff out there. Like, part of growing up and part of maturing is, is regret and making those mistakes and, and learning from them and feeling horrible when you do things wrong. And it, it kind of makes you stronger because you've, you've felt that pain of, of either embarrassing yourself or hurting someone. I would imagine previous generations went through that same transition. Only now we're just putting everybody under a microscope and we see everything that they're doing and people are sharing just way too much information that makes us think that this entire generation is more fragile than ever before. I totally disagree. I mean, it's, I don't think it's just a perception. And there, but how, there, do you, how do you know what happened 60 years ago? Well, we can look at things like statistics. We can look at drugs. Statistics, can, they can be manipulated just like anything else. Psychiatric hospitalizations. Well, that's all on the rise. There's, there's no doubt about it. But the way that people coped and the way that they overcame a, a lot of on, things. People on disability. Have you seen the statistics no. of, of disability for a mental illness or a mental health condition? Well, it wasn't covered previously, right? It was something that was added. Even when it was covered. So the rise in the 2000s compared to the 1990s, like there has always been SSID, you know, available for I don't know how long. We can look back at the statistics, how many people SSID. met. SSID. Social Security for, or SSD, Social Security for Disability. Uh-huh. So people who are unable to work due to a major mental health diagnosis. Mm. So there's disability statistics. Um, there's statistics around suicide, substance abuse. They're around despair. So how do you measure a culture's well-being? So even going back to like the Great Depression, you know, you they do have statistics or writings based on um, 
you know, substance use, alcoholism, um, suicide, and other men, or other like uh, s- statistics of mental well-being. Mm-hmm. Because I was reading an article not too long ago that the mental well-being of American society is worse than the Great Depression. So there's certainly cultural factors here that come into play. Um, not to mention rising, you know, suicide of young people um, and uh, diagnoses of depression, anxiety. I understand that's complex, Sean, mm-hmm. but I, I don't want to just say, oh, it's just, you know, this is what every generation thinks of the last, uh, you know, generation. It's not really different. No, it is, it is different by every statistical measure. I don't think it, that's even in, in question anymore. So let's look into the future. If it's consistently getting poor... Like, what's next generation going to be like? Well, I don't want to look into the future because we have the problem <laughs> that exists right now. I, I know, but like, how do you solve this problem? I think it's, you know, part of this t- today's discussion is to talking about bringing resilience and coping back into our, into our national discourse mm-hmm. from parenting to our public school system. But you know that's in direct competition with, with media, it's in direct competition with pharmaceutical sales. It's in direct competition with politics. You always look at me like you have no idea <laughs> paying attention what we're to talking you. about in these situations. I'm paying attention to what you're saying right now. I want comments. Well, part, have- of the, part of the issue going back to my dad's generation would be the acceptance of their reality versus now when you are saying, oh, I accept the reality, I'm going through struggles, but then you go on media, social media, television, they're telling you, do not accept your reality. Everything can change. Just do this or just take this medication. Or just, I, There's a big difference in solutions now versus people accepting who they were and going through. So people, maybe my father would have looked at struggle as a process of learning and getting better versus now, if you're going through struggle, it's not learning. You have a problem. I think that message has completely transformed. I agree. And that's try, that's my greater point because there's so many times where I'll just turn on a television and watch a, a, like a, a news um, segment or look at the pharmaceutical advertising or just look at some of the stuff you know surrounded with a, a social justice movement behind it. And underneath it is this constant message that what you're going through and what you're experiencing could be a sign or a symptom of something that is really serious. And it's created this general like distrust in people's ability to understand their own internal experiences. What I mean by internal experiences, your own emotional reactions to things your own thoughts. Of course, that's compounded by constant social media comparison and a number of other factors. But don't you feel like we have a low emotional intelligence? Like right now, like at any point, people don't really understand what is normal to experience because it's not discussed. Well, I feel like communication has has gone down the shitter. I feel like people don't understand that they can communicate effectively by actually talking things out, talking about their struggles openly. And now I do feel like it's people keep to themselves a lot more. I mean, I see a lot more, let's put it this way at the, at the high school level, I see a lot more people just keeping to themselves, being quiet, you know, 
accepting the fact that they don't have to talk if they don't want to talk. Is that a, what do you think that's about? Is that like a more of a pervasive distrust of others? I think it's, I think it's just a, a lack of the ability to be confident about what's on their thoughts and mind. I, I think when they speak out, maybe a teacher, maybe at fifth grade, for example, sat there and said, well, that's not the proper way to communicate. I think that there's this over emphasis of how to communicate, which is causing a problem with communication because communication comes naturally to people. Young children, they shout out everything as we all can tell. They do everything and then suddenly they get into schools and they're told, do not say this, do not say that, don't talk about this, don't ever say this, don't talk about. And I get, I, I feel that they're confused. And that's an interesting point. And I wonder how much social media has to play because it's a different way of communicating. You know, on Twitter, people can say things to you on the comments that they would never be willing to say face to face, right? There is certainly a breakdown in civility and in the public discourse. So maybe that does generate almost this fear of being judged um, or like being very careful or protective about how the outside world might perceive you. Well, instead of beer muscles, it's Twitter muscles. Yeah. You know, you're not around the person, so you can say whatever you want. And at, at the very least, then you can block them. You can sit there and do whatever you want. In real, in the real world, we sit there and if we have to have a, a serious conversation, we have to look at each other and we have to accept each other you know, for what we are saying. And part of the problem, I believe, is that people are being told, don't accept the other side. Don't listen to the other side. Just cancel it out. Completely forget about it. That's what social media is teaching people to do is I can block you. I don't have to listen to you. When in reality, all opinions count. We learn from all opinions. We innovate from all opinions. And so part of the problem with, um, you know, going through struggle is you can post it on Twitter. And if you're not getting the Pot, you know, the feedback, that's what I'm saying with positive feedback, then you're just basically ignoring what anyone is saying. Yeah. And when we talk about the, the mental well-being, we're not talking about people who've gone through something, you know, horribly traumatic. We're actually talking about the general well-being of everyday life, mm -hmm. you know, so like that type of experience. But I think I've learned more from the people who've gone through some form of of trauma, whether that is early loss or neglect or, um, you know, a combat veteran or, or somebody who's a survivor of rape, you know, these people, when they come in into therapy, obviously are, are really struggling with what has happened to them. But I want to be able to analyze kind of the growth process and how they've shifted from the way they think to the way they feel to how they approach their life, which has been truly inspiring and that is something for all of us to learn in, in culture and society. Basically, that we have the capacity within us to respond to extremely stressful situations and grow from it and actually potentially even have an improved quality of life. I, I, I fear like the, the, if we're talking, Sean, about the trajectory we're on, you know, I'm, I'm fearful that that the, these cultural judgments and these statements and this medicalization of the human experience is leading people in a direction to not know how to respond to adversity. Because they don't have any perspective on how to overcome that because they've never had to deal with anything. Yeah. Well, they have, I mean, they have to deal with things, but they're but not, it's you still a lot have of to just be normal. Taught. It's normal, normal things that happen in your everyday life. Now people are 
have a tendency to kind of seek out medication for. That's the fragility that, you know, that's the fragility I'm concerned about. Like, and I'm not talking about people that experience trauma. I'm just talking about the people that just every day, every day, yeah, you know, like just feeling socially anxious or a little bit rejected or, you know, going through a period in, in life where maybe you're, you're feeling anxious or you're not at your best, like everything's being driven in that, in that direction. And it is being somewhat like re- rewarded as if you're doing something for your, your own health. And my argument is that no, that's, that's the wrong response. You're not doing something for your health. You're actually starting down a path, unfortunately, that is going to create much more, more struggle. One, from turning to some sort of substance to try to change the way you feel, but also not understanding and learning from the experience. So like one thing that I've, I've learned about the human capacity for resilience that's extraordinary is that I've seen people kind of go through hell and be able to come out the other side. So I no longer label a difficult period with anxiety or mood or eating as a disorder. I shift and start talking about this as as an opportunity. And that shift in thinking about your problems or struggles away from a disorder and to an opportunity is an attitude transition that shifts that person's entire experience from what's wrong with me to what I can become. Mm-hmm. We talked about the growth mindset and the, uh, I'm sorry, what's the fixed mindset? Fixed mindset. I mean, is that really what we're talking about here? Those who, the fixed mindset are the ones that see themselves as suffering from this, uh, this period of anxiety and it becomes who they are and it becomes an excuse. Uh, well, I can't do that because of my anxiety. I can't go here because of my anxiety. A justification. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Um, whereas the, those who have kind of come out of it, they see it as a period that they're, it's something that they can learn from to make them stronger so that they don't ever have to experience it to that degree ever again. Is that the difference in the, in the individual that you're seeing in, in a therapeutic situation? Is there certain characters or something about those people that, that really stands out that might make them different? Is it just that mindset? I don't want to say it's the people that I, I see because I would say the overwhelming majority of people who who come in to treatment are of a, of a mindset that I want to face this. I want to be able to overcome it. Um, I wonder if it's some of the people who don't necessarily get good care and treatment for social media, for example. So I posted this on, on Saturday on, on my Twitter account. I know this isn't live, but I just posed the question, you know, I wanted to, I just wanted to post throughout the day what I've learned from people who've overcome tragedy mm-hmm. in their life. And it's supposed to be somewhat uplifting, right? And it's and just kind of speaking to the the human spirit. And then you would get p- people who would make comments angry for actually for me even posting it, as if um, there is some personal attack on them for not for them not being able to overcome what they've been what they've went through. Like they are really stuck on what has happened to them without being able to take the steps to move forward in their life. Now, for, I, I want to say up front, I have compassion for that, that person or those people. There was a number of comments. I have no idea what, they, what they've gone through. But if we're going to learn from those who've gone through tragedy and trauma to live great lives, I think one of the things, Sean and Kelly, that really stands out is that that person almost 
vehemently opposes victimization. Like they don't want to see their lives to be determined by that event. They don't hold on to this identity as a victim to the circumstances of other people or, or situations. And they don't want to feel controlled by that time in their life. So it drives them with an open heart and an open mind to be able to face what happened to them. And that's painful. Like memories and traumatic memories are very, very painful. For them. So talking about it and feeling the emotions and accepting the emotions that come up from that experience is certainly a, a, a component of that person's individual willingness to go through a therapy or, or be able to recover from what happened to them. So they understand that their emotions, they serve them painful in the moment, but the repeated ability to kind of face it and experience it and talk about it allows that emotional experience to be able to decrease in intensity and they feel a little bit more in control of, of, of what they're feeling when they go out and back into the world. But certainly there's a major difference there between someone who fixates on what is wrong with them, they're, they've been victimized by other people and they're unable to do things versus the, the individual who takes a completely different mm-hmm. mindset. Those uh, people through social media that are attacking it, clearly they're not hearing the message that you're trying to put out there. Is it possible that people are not really reading? They're just like in a conversation thinking about what they want to say next and they're not listening to what's actually being said. We're going back to communication and, and the inability of people to actually have a conversation and talk to one another. I still think it takes a, a very almost inspiring moment for an individual that's going through what they're going through to just have this breakthrough moment of, whoa, I get what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I think social media does not allow for that to occur. I think it just keeps the confirmation bias going. Yeah. Um, I mean, I bring up, uh, you know, sometimes talking to my own friends or family. Um, my father had passed away two years ago. And one of the things when I was, I wasn't allowed to see him because of COVID, but when I was able to, they finally let me in and I looked at him I'm frail. I'm like, this kind of epiphany happens where, you sit there and you look at a person that's that's leaving the world and you realize everyone will be there at some point. And when we think about our own problems and issues and struggles right now, where we are at 40s, 30s, 20s, you're going to be there. So just remember, you only have a certain amount of time mm-hmm. to be able to break through. And the way that people think sometimes, if they're fearful, if they're going through struggle, I go, you know, I said, you have to think about the moment it's sometimes it's not living if you're only fixated on the issue that you have. Memento mori, you know, remember you will die. Mm-hmm. And it's at the temporary nature of everything. So even in a, in a painful period in, in your life or a struggle, this too is temporary, as is our lives. You know, we are, we are born and we will die. We will return to the earth. That is, that is all of us. So that, is, that perspective certainly... Um, you know, can come from going through hell. You know, you go through a tragedy or you go through hell. It can be a clarification of that idea. You know, hey, life is, is, is temporary. I've gotten through this. I might as well live life to the fullest. And there's the concept of post-traumatic growth, which is, 
you know, it, it completely shifts your perspective on what life is. And it can allow you to take more, you know, healthy risks and create new experiences. And that's the interesting part of this. And I don't want to get too philosophical with, uh, with the two of you, but like I, I pose these questions out there sometimes, like if you've never kind of gone through anything really hard, does everything then become hard? Like, isn't everything a matter of, of, of perception? Sure. Yeah. I saw you put that out and I found myself thinking I was, it's, it's hard for me. Cause I know you're going to come in here and talk about people's experiences that have experienced the worst in terms of trauma. So to say that I've ever had a, struggles in my life comparatively seems foolish. The only struggles that I've ever really had had been things that can be managed, you know, things that either, you know, physically. So, you know, just let's say, you know, hiking up to the top of Mount Whitney and just like struggling and running out of water, like those things, I know there's an end to it. You know, there's going to be a point where you're done or like training for a marathon and completing the marathon or trying to start a family and failing month after month after month. And we just had a little mantra. My wife and I would say to each other, well, no regrets. You know, you don't want to ever look back 20, 30 years and say, well, we should have just kept trying. We should have done it one more time. We should have not given up. We shouldn't have gone on that vacation. We should have just focused because who knows what would have happened. Um, so that idea of like no regrets and just kind of pursuing and doing things became a big part of who we were in the first 10 years of our marriage. Yeah, I mean, and I want to ask a little bit more about, you know, your own coping style, because um, although, you know, I, I agree when it comparatively speaking, you know, with some of the things that clients of mine and other people in the world have had to gone through, had to go through, certainly we have a, a, a very blessed life and, and mm-hmm. we're aware of that. Um, but it, it doesn't mean your only your only tragedies or your own struggles, you know, are like training for a marathon or climbing Mount Whitney. Like you've, <laughs> you know, you did lose a father at, at, at a young age, yeah. you know, so that's a, you know, you're... But everybody loses somebody. Well, I mean, it's about when, right? So when yeah. it's younger, you know, your son doesn't have a grandfather, you know, True. on yeah. either side, yeah. um, you know, early loss. Mm-hmm. Um, you did struggle with fertility and being able to conceive a child for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought... Um, about how you would have coped if you weren't able to be a father, for example? Um, I The way that we phrased it is if it never happened, I think we probably would have looked towards adoption because there's a lot of children out there that you know need love and a home, and I felt like we could provide it. But I also would say to my wife, well, we'll just be great uh, aunts and uncles. And we'll, we'll live our lives another way in terms of experiences. We'll, we'll kind of fill our, our days with experiences, but I always looked down, you know, 20 years from then and felt like we would still have a a sense of emptiness. So I I felt like we would have eventually found a way to kind of give that love to to somebody, uh, either a child through adoption or, or whatever. Yeah, and so that speaks to your willingness to be able to adapt to what is brought to you in in life. Even mm-hmm. though you acknowledge there would have been an emptiness without a child, you would have adapted to try to create a life worth living for yourself, given the circumstances. Yeah, right. And and like that's an attitude and a and a coping response. When we were talking about you know back to you know what you see on social media, people get stuck 
in things that have happened to them. And then it begins to define them. So comparatively speaking, you would have been the person who, who could never be a father, mm-hmm. right? And that would have been your identity. It could fuel anger. It could refuel, fuel resentment, like be angry at your circumstances, compare yourself to others who, who have so easily ha- were, were able to have children. Oh, I did that too. <laughs> You'd get angry at the young people that are having, you know, families, you know, very, very easily without even thinking about it. And that easily can frustrate you. Um, but then you just kind of accept it and you don't dwell on it is really what it comes down to. Yeah, I guess one of my questions, you know, for you, and I think it's an important one when it comes to pr- you know, perspective, yeah. perspective taking right. is given the challenges in being able to conceive and, and, and have your son and, and you're an older father, you're 44 years old and you have a one and a half year old mm-hmm. and your wife is how old? A little bit older than me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you didn't go through those struggles and it came easier, would you be, would you think about being a father differently? Would you be a parent? You know, would you be a different parent if you didn't go through those struggles? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate it more than I could ever imagine because of those struggles. And I, I relish the good and the bad because, you know, I have a smile on my face because if I imagine a world without, you know, a child and I knew it wasn't always going to be easy. Mm -hmm. Uh, So even those bad moments, I just kind of, I enjoy it. And I think that goes back to the things that I have definitely learned from people who've gone through tragedy. There is certainly a dialectical nature in living. Like, can you really love, truly love, if you haven't experienced loss? Can you appreciate life if you haven't been, if you haven't, you know, lost somebody that's close to you and you've had to face the temporary nature of of life? And can you really, you know, appreciate peace if you haven't suffered? We asked that question in here a long time ago um, about if you have your timeline of life and you could go back and you can change that one moment that you recall as being almost like a turning point in your life, sometimes a very bad moment that affected you negatively, would you go back and would you change that event? And we realized that everything stemmed from there in terms of the positive things in our world. Sure. You know. Kelly, I mean, you thought about the things of your past and if you would go back and change anything, do you feel like you would? Well, remember, I had that really good uh, TV show idea where, you, you know, in order to get back to where you are yeah. and you wish everything away because you're struggling. Yep. All right. And I don't know, the devil, I don't know. Somebody comes and says, hey, I got you. Mm-hmm. But then they have to take you back in time. Mm-hmm. But you have to go and, and you realize, well, I want everything back that I had. But you, in order to get back there, you have to go through every single <laughs> yes, struggle identically right. I again, right? Now. Yes. And and so, yeah, I think when people are asked, would you change anything? Everybody's like, of course I would. But then if you're accepting of your life and you're, you know, you're leading a, a positive life and you have a lot of good things in your life, you wouldn't say yes to that. You mm-hmm. would say, I'm happy I went through those struggles. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm absolutely, um, I'm blessed to have gone through those struggles. That's a mindset though. That doesn't come very easy, mm-hmm. I would imagine, to the vast majority of people. Yeah, right. reminds me of two things. Go for it. One, someone's going to listen to this podcast. Oh, God, don't take my idea. <laughs> they're they're going to write a script that's going to be like an Emmy Award winning. You know, <laughs> that is you know. bullshit right there. <laughs> uh, trademark, patent pending. Come on. <laughs> the other is a quote, quote from 
Buddha. The, the lotus flower blooms most beautifully from the deepest and thickest mud. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, is, it, it, is, it is only from those circumstances and those struggles can uh, you know, real beauty be developed. I, if you had to go back and relive those moments again, the horrible ones, how, what would your approach be? Do you think you would handle it better? I mean, you have to go to really specific ones because I think on one instance, I just want to drank as much. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, I mean, I listen, I am very, I look at my life right now and I'm blessed. Uh, a lot of opportunities, my family. So when people say, would you change anything? If I said yes, then I wouldn't have what I have. Yeah. I stand by that. So the embarrassing moments, the things that you're talking about, the things I would never say on a podcast, I would still probably want to go through them the same exact way and still be embarrassed or humiliated or struggle or be depressed or, you know, think very, very sometimes dark thoughts because I'm now here. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm hoping that people, when they listen to this, will understand. It's okay to embrace them. It's okay to look at them as something that is a passing fleeting moment in your life that has taught you something to make you better, mm-hmm. not worse. But Sean brought up a good point earlier where he was talking about acceptance, the acceptance of things. And I'm just like, well, and that's where I go back to my dad. Maybe I didn't make that clear earlier. I think people just accepted things for what they were and learned from them. And they looked at their world so differently. They looked at them like they were, this is my world. This is what I have. I accept what I have. Do I need more? Maybe. Do I not? But I have this right here. And it's really just cool to think about what you have, the positives. Mm-hmm. So the big, que- the larger question, and this is, you know, where I always get these looks from Sean when I, when I bring up anything that's I want to like, see the look. We go. That's, you know, <laughs> political or media driven <laughs> is what has changed, right? If, if that was part of the, you know, American culture, Mm-hmm. You know, the, the acceptance of things that were challenging and, and difficult to drive you forward. Because let's face it, if you think about the American system in general, there's a lot of like, um, you know, you, you work hard for upward mobility. You know, each generation should be better than the last. You, um, you know, you learn these lessons, you, you work hard. And, you know, you either go off to school or a trade and then, you know, you have opportunities because it's, you know, it's free capitalism. And with free capitalism, you know, you can use your talents and your hard work to to benefit you. But something has shifted in that discussion um, and in our culture along the way where current generations or millennials don't haven't adopted the same kind of attitude or perspective on how they approach their life. Yeah, potentially. I think it's, it's the generation after millennials because now millennials are like 40 years old and they're homeowners. And I, I would think they thirties, right? No, nah, they're, they're 40. When's the oldest, gener- when's oldest generation millenn- X. That That's would, me. I'm 46, 45. Yeah. You're, you're, you're gen X, but gen Y would have been, doesn't matter. Okay. But millennials now are, are okay. people think millennials are the 20 year olds, but it's really it's, thirties, it's your, 30s, your yeah. children. Mm. <laughs> That's the generation that I think is really having a hard time right now is um, when you're in your twenties in your mid twenties right now, those are the ones that have grown up with these devices. Um, you can constantly just throw yourself into a phone to escape uh, that you don't have conversations with people. You don't learn how to 
deal with situations and confront people face to face. You've confronted them online through chat. And that to me is just the worst way to learn how to, to deal with anything because there have been no repercussions. You just kind of like block somebody and just walk away. That's crap. But I don't see, this is what I don't understand. And, and I still, that didn't still answer my question. Like if there was a certain approach and a certain attitude that existed generationally in the United States, at what point did it stop? At what's at what point did people stop then developing this kind of internal locus of control and this attitude and belief to be able to become more resilient, respond to the challenges, to uplift yourself and your family to overcome? And when did it start becoming more of a like a victimization mindset where you have like an external locus of control. Like your fate is mostly determined by others or worse, certain identity markers. There is no doubt in my mind that televisions and our devices have caused that shift because you're being told to rely on everyone. By who? Like what, well, what is like, this is where we can't get to in this podcast think, okay. is we get to a point where we, we recognize <laughs> no, you the get problem. To the point. <laughs> We, we get to this we get to this stage where we recognize the problem but with any depth in trying to understand how True. or why it's there there's a there's a block right there's definitely a resistance from you Sean like there's like you. like your eyes it's like a deer in the headlight like okay. uh oh this is outside of the way I want to see the world I'm not programmed to think <laughs> this on. way and you, you try to, and you begin to you, you begin to always, shut down or change the conversation I just always look I was like all right where's Roger gonna go with this one I don't know that there's a, def a definite answer to what you're asking, but let me just say um, by using an example, like with parenting, children, as we all know, are extremely hard to raise. They're challenging. It's probably the hardest thing that people will have to go through if they choose to have children. And your, your life goes from maybe financial struggle, it goes to emotional struggle, it goes to uh, now finally challenging each other because you have different parenting styles. There's a lot that goes into it. And one of the easiest things to do in in the last 20 years, I guess now, maybe 25, if you just give a child a device, they're pacified. There's, they, they, they are, they're pacified. I've seen so many people at restaurants and I'm not, please don't, our listeners don't, I'm not attacking it, I get it, but I've seen so many people just, they, the, the, the husband, wife, whoever's together, it doesn't matter. They're finally having a conversation because all three children are looking down at their screens. And those screens, then, then we can go into, well, then what are they watching? All right, but this is still the symptom. This is the symptom of the, the problem. Okay, so I totally agree with you. I think we all agree. But if parents are parenting through screens, right? Like mm -hmm. if, if, if kids are being occupied, by, by that screen. Can we at least say that we can begin to start attributing it at least to some economic problems that exist in the United States? You know, most people, like in families, to be able to, to survive and thrive require both parents in the workforce. Yep. Fair? No doubt. Okay. And so if you have two parents that are in the workforce and working two jobs their child or their children are in daycare centers, mm -hmm. right? So they are removed from their child's life for at least a percentage of the day. And if they return home, I mean, aren't they tired? Aren't they consumed still by their, their job? 
And there's additional stressors, even by working two jobs in American society. You still might be having financial problems and living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Yep. I would say that's the majority of people, especially right now. There's, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. So the social media and the phones, they become this constant distraction from what you're experiencing. So like we, we talk so much about, um, you know, how, how modern society has, you know, overcome like discrimination or challenges or we recognize discrimination and challenges that exist. But there are real shifts in the American family, right? Where there are some breakdowns in the American family based on economic stress. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if a woman wants to be in the workforce, they should be right. Like that every opportunity for every individual to be able to create the life that they want should exist. But we should also acknowledge there are consequences to taking parents out of the home and being full-time caregivers for their children. And that, that has an impact that is a trickle-down effect, mm -hmm. right? So if we start doing things like, um, you know, living through screens and kids are, um, you know, in daycare or they're in this activity and that activity, like they're constantly filling up their time away from that interaction with their own parents. One, that could impact their relationship. Mm -hmm. Two, parents might not be as engaged in teaching very important lessons. And if these kids are learning in, in screens and need these, like this constant stimulation, it certainly affects their ability to sit down and focus when time requires it, right? So we're having like this rapid rise in the past couple decades of like labels or diagnoses of ADHD or autism outside that would ever be seen, you know, within a normal kind of um, uh, bell-shaped curve. And we're not always like we're not always like taking a look at what is happening and what's different in society. I do see parents as stressed and overwhelmed, mm -hmm. and you know that is impacting their ability to to manage, raise, connect, and 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 like discipline their their own children. Yeah, I, the financial component um, I would believe is the contributor to most families. Um, you know the financial guidelines they tell you like don't ever spend more than 30 percent on your your home whatever your household income is i would imagine now the majority of people it's probably like 40 to 45 percent of their income is going towards homes either in rent like rent is ridiculous especially if you're close to a city and even in the um the states uh outside of the majors i mean idaho i saw their home prices went up like 40 percent in just the last two years. So there's, there's places all over this country that people are just being pushed out because they can no longer afford to be where they spent the majority of their life. Yeah. So like Netflix and, you know, um, escapism, Facebook becomes the escape. You know, I have a lot of, um, you know, young ladies or women who, who I've met, you know, both in my social world and, and, and just through therapy who say they, they don't want to work full time. They might want to do other things, like maybe a part-time engagement in, in some things or be involved in the community. They have to work. They have to work financially. And some of it's been driven into their, their heads, they say, that 
if I'm not working full time, I'm less than. So the idea of actually being a stay at home mother in their mind, they're devalued for that in American culture when previously uh, it was revered. It's the most valuable thing. And, yeah. and there's certainly like a demonization of that in modern society, like looking back into previous generations and a mother being at home and raising a child has been, has been demonized. I've certainly like understood those to be some of the, if we go below the surface, those are some of the, the variables that certainly, you know, are, are impacting this. I agree. And uh, from experience and talking to friends, the majority of their wives were working in Los Angeles and it was only paying for daycare. The amount of money the wife was making was going right into daycare. And you have to ask yourself the question, like, why? Why are you, why are you making that sacrifice? You're spending thousands of dollars a month to put your child into daycare. You're going to work. You're making that exact amount of money. Why don't you just stop working and then just spend the time with your children? Yeah, it, it takes a lot of um, patience to, to be a, a, a parent of, like, young kids in particular, like, before their school age. So like those early years up to like six, you know, before they go six or seven before they're in, you know, first grade, like those early years, they're, they're a lot of a, a attention and focus. And it could, you know, you could also be exposed to like a lot of things like loneliness if you don't have a social support network. Um, and that's like, that's the development of things like play groups and, and so forth, like mm -hmm. mom's groups, yep. you know, because those things are, are really necessary because you can feel isolated if you're a stay at home mother or stay at home father and you're trying to, you know, you're trying to raise your kid, but they're such critical years. Um, and, you know, if you remove yourself from that, you know, there could be a lot of self judgment on you as a, as a parent too, and your ability to be able to respond to the needs of your, your own kids, mm -hmm. which could also, you know, drive children into the system. You know, that system is other people are making judgments upon, on, on your kids. And then, you know, you as a parent experience like guilt for why they might be struggling in school mm -hmm. or why they responded this way, you know, at the, uh, you, you know, at, at, at the activity or, or sports or shouldn't they be doing better? Should, should they be acting like this? Maybe this is different. Do I have anything that are concerns? Things that previously would have been viewed in terms of like maybe normal developmental challenges or, um, you know, phases that don't get a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. Like now in this expert culture that we live in, there's this hyper vigilance to anything that might go wrong with your own kid and maybe a lack of even understanding of what might be normal or expected given this situation because we're not talking about it that way. The support systems aren't set up that way. Mm -hmm. There's not enough like groups together of parents who are raising same age kids and the connection of community and, and a normalization. Certainly the medical establishment is hyper-focused on everything that could be wrong with, with children and in this Society that's litigious and a number of other things, everything's so fear-driven. Mm -hmm. So in my opinion, like these are cultural factors that are influencing the, the, the poor mental health of, of American culture right now. Yeah. The, I guess the importance of a community is the exposure to other families and knowing what a child is going through is, you know, behavioral, right? I mean, most behavioral issues can be modified and that's the role of a parent is to put your, 
when your child has those situations where they're acting out is to, you know, discipline them or sit them down and let them know that it's not acceptable and always have repercussions for actions that are, uh, are inappropriate. But without that community to have that conversation with and with people that you trust and care about, you often resort to the advice of a teacher or a doctor that thinks that needs to be uh, medicated. For, well, that's for lack of a absolutely. Word. And even, even teachers are, you know, trying to keep problems away from students. And I'm like, I said to my, my said to my wife the other day is like, if, if Brooks, you know, we played games, um, baseball games and he, you know, he struggled in one game and I'm like, listen, if kids don't go through this and you don't allow them to go through this, their life is going to be harder, mm-hmm. right? It, it, they, it, everyone has to go through these things in order to be, to make their life easier. Right now, the concept is don't go through anything difficult. There's a solution to it and your life will be easier. That's not true. You have to go through hard things in order for your life to become easier. It, it doesn't work any other way. It just won't ever work any other way. So another kind of concern about the social media component, all right, because this is where social comparison comes in into play. So if you are more isolated and you're working more, right, and so your focus or your attention is, you know, is on your job. And so there's less time for leisure um, or there's less time for community connection. Where are you learning about what is normal <laughs> about like living? You know, you end up like learning about what is normal from from what you're exposed to. You know, this I I put out a tweet today. It was in a book I read. Um, where your attention goes, your energy flows. So if your attention is scrolling because it's a distraction, and you are witnessing and observing other people in their best moments, very constructed photos, for example. You're almost leaving this impression that everyone else is living these full great lives almost as if you would see it on a television show. (laughs) And then you're back and you're comparing it to what you're feeling in that moment. You might be tired at the end of a work way. You're trying to work day. You're trying to raise a three or four year old who's having a meltdown on the, on the floor. You don't want to give that child attention. You just want to relax because it's been a long day and you have to get up at five 30 in the morning to get back and, for your 45 minute, your hour commute the very next day, mm-hmm. you know? So think about where your attention is. Now that, that attention is going to fuel kind of a, an emptiness or a loneliness that exists in, in your own life. And therefore you begin to see your typical day as something that is somewhat like boring and you're not living fully. And that could breed negative emotional states. And you begin to kind of enter into this process where, you know, I'm unhappy. I'm not living the life that other people are living. And that's kind of a fake life, right? Because it's that social oh, media yeah. life. It's mostly fake. Yeah. And it's not like we're posting on, you know, on our social media, you know, having a meltdown with my kid. I'm on four hours sleep. Um, I can't stand my husband right now. You know, like these things aren't like posted and, and normal, but they're normal aspects of living. If someone is posting those, I'd like to know what they're... Uh 
Well, some their, people their handle is. I'd really like to read those. Some people post what they're eating for every, you know, every dinner and breakfast and lunch. Those are always fun. I would have had a couple of days last week where I would have been posting uh, my world. I haven't showered yet. I'm eating a grilled cheese sandwich and I, I'm hungry. It should be an experiment. Maybe you should start doing that and see what people do. See if you get likes and hearts or what kind of emotional yeah, reaction. Follow us at Rajan Pod. I'm going to be sharing. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, is there enough values talk? Like, um, for example, like things that I've learned from people who've gone through like horrific experiences and come out the other side, there's more of a clarification of values. Like what makes life worth living? So although they may take pictures, right. And as they're more for like, um, for being able to capture a moment, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of be able to look back with some sense of, of joy it's uh, it may be a representation of like something that they're, they're doing that's new, but there's a clarification of, of values. And that might be like, I have a purpose in this world. Maybe it is raising my kid mm-hmm. or maybe it is creating or maybe it is new experience or maybe it's serving others. That clarification of values that can only come through going through hell and you go through hell and you begin to figure out like, listen, um, you know, this time is, it, it, it's temporary. I want to make the most of it. And if you go through something hard yourself, I think you have a greater capacity potentially. Um, again, if you're recovering and you're, you know, you're overcoming something, you have this greater capacity for, for empathy, human empathy, uh, where you might be more attentive to the struggles that other people go through. And maybe you're a better friend. Mm-hmm. Or maybe whatever you do to serve the community through volunteering or through a certain profession, you know, that capacity for empathy allows you to connect with other people. And that serves your purpose, just to help somebody and to be able to send a a message that you can get through this. You've been through something hard. I've gone through it. I know you can get through it. Mm -hmm. I agree. And some of those, if people are sharing things through social media, sometimes you can put them into those categories of if they're inspiring or motivational or aspirational, the ones that are inspiring and motivational, those are the ones that actually could motivate you to take action and make improvements in your life. Because if you feel like you're just kind of in a rut and you're not living your best life, then there's the possibility those could give you the little push to put the phone down and get out and do something that's great. But if you're just looking at somebody who's dressed up, dolled up, eating really nice food and going on all these experiences, that's the crap that is probably mostly fake. And that's not what people are doing with the majority of their life. They might have a whole bunch of photos that are saved on their phone and they're just kind of sparsing them out. They did a little photo shoot. They had a group of people behind them and they're making it look really good. And it's really, it's all fake. Yeah, there's no doubt. I think people do that purposely to Mm -hmm. kind of avoid any type of struggle that they're actually going through. Yep. I'm just like, if I post this and it's a beautiful picture of my family on the beach, no one will know that I'm going through anything. And yep. it's just like, well, if you're out there and you did that, you're like, focus on it. It's okay that you're going through what you're going through. There's a reason that you're going through it. Mm-hmm. Learn from it, you know, move beyond it. Like, I pull my phone out sometimes just to capture a moment, you know, and I'll just record 15 seconds, something like that. But I, for the most part, just want to, be in that moment you know and just live it and remember it sometimes that 15 second clip will help me remember what was really happening and i I hate taking pictures of everything it drives me nuts so put the phones down live your lives look one another in the eye when you're out a concert or if you're 
at a beautiful point overlooking a valley. Just kind of take it all in. You don't have to record every moment of your life. Yeah, I'm going to uh, a Billy Joel concert on Wednesday. Nice. Uh, Madison Square Garden. And it's it's a mean it's a meaningful concert for me because Sean Sean knows very well that um you know our father like all he listened to was Billy Joel <laughs> mm-hmm. right so that's like the soundtrack of our childhood mm-hmm. so like every you know favorite favorite song <sighs> only the good die young hey. probably <laughs> you know um, only because that you know that kind of song is a reminder of our father because right. he, he died young. But I love a lot of songs, right? Mm-hmm. Even the ones I couldn't even tell you the titles. Once I hear it again, I'll be like, oh, yeah, and it'll take you back to a, a different time. Um, but my point being here is that, um, you know, we have to be able to learn how to live fully in the present. And my wife this morning said, are you looking forward to, you know, going to, going to the concert on Wednesday? And I told her, No. and i said that's not how i'm training my 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 mind i'm looking forward to today so i've really kind of gotten myself into meditation practice i've mentioned it on this podcast before i'm really like working hard at fully embracing all the moments of my life um and not thinking too far ahead that takes me out of the the present moment and she's like asking me questions almost like she was taking it personally. Like I'm not looking forward to spending time with her and going to see the concert. Well, of course I want to do that. That's mm-hmm. exciting. But I don't want to be thinking about Wednesday night when it's Monday morning. Mm-hmm. And that's how I want to train my mind. And when I'm there, I want to be fully in it and experience the, the joy with it. But I think, you know, people who've kind of gone through some, you know, difficult times, their minds want to kind of go back into the past and kind of replay it or go into the future to try to prevent that bad thing that from happening. So part of the recovery process is being able to, to train a mindful way of living and bringing your attention fully into the moment to be able to experience life again and not be controlled by the, some of the circumstances that have happened previously. And that's the amazing wisdom that you find with people and their willingness to do that. When they practice meditation, when they practice mindfulness, when they have daily intentions of the things they want to, to accomplish, they're just constantly practicing on focusing their attention into the present moment because they know the burden of their mind in, in painful memories. Nowadays, like let's imagine, you know, people who haven't gone through those experiences we're not in the present moment because our minds are being hijacked by electronics, mm-hmm. by the constant stimulation. And so I think that creates a tension in us, uh, an anxiety in us. Um, and we are less comfortable just being in stillness and being able to direct our attention outward. I'd hate to be sitting in the concert and my mind thinking about, the next thing I need to do or comparing the music to another concert that I was in or the story I had in my mind about it. Like I don't want to imagine what the concert's going to be like because then I have another point of comparison. Like, Oh, I thought he would look different. Oh, I, he doesn't sound the same way. Uh, You know, whatever that is, I don't want to, I don't want to be in it. I want to practice more being still and engaged in the moment. And I think we can train people to do that, it takes such a gigantic shift in a different direction from the trajectory that, that we're on. 
Like if we're going to talk about American culture and its well-being and why it's, it's suffering, I think in some regards there has to be a, uh, a complete repudiation of like everything that some people view as, as progress and almost go in a different direction to look back into our collective histories and, and when were people doing the best. And I think we, we do the best when we're not so consumed mm-hmm. with our jobs. We're not so consumed with social media. There is stillness. There is a capacity for boredom. My goodness, how about being bored? You know, or the growth that can take place with being bored because it can spring creativity. Yeah. Like, and that's when kids would go out and make up games, mm-hmm. you know, and they interact more. And think about all that is learned through social interaction. When you're in face-to-face social interaction, you have to solve problems. You are responsible for what you might have said or what you might have done. You might even have to go back to the playground and duke it out a little bit to figure it out, right? <laughs> there, you learn a social order of things that you are not learning uh, in today's isolated society, run by experts, controlled by adults. And that's the word control. Like even if you're, um, even if you're working two jobs and you're not involved in the day-to-day raising of your, your kids, some adult is, and they're controlling every aspect of it. From your, from your organized play to your, all your activities to the way that school is set up to the daycare center. You know, how much are you allowing for the natural order of things to play out for learning? Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.